Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're continuing uh, as we let our children be dismissed to Kids Church and uh, let them know that we're thankful for them this morning. Amen. We're continuing in a series called Jesus' Most Confounding Statements. And this one this morning is probably a memory verse. This might be your life verse. It's from John 6.53. If you can read it up there, it says, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. How many of you, that's your life verse this morning? It's not? You're thinking, is that even in the Bible? That's just weird. Well... That's why it's one of those confounding statements. How many of you have ever read that and thought, I think I'm just going to keep reading because if I stop there, I might get scared. How many of you just wonder, what in the world is that talking about? Well, that's why it was chosen as one of those statements that kind of confounds us. And there's multiple others, many others. But this morning, we're going to look at that prior to us receiving uh, the, at the or, get, or the, the communion this morning together as a church family. <clears throat> we live in a period of time in which spiritually people are spiritually hungry. I would even go as far as to say that they are spiritually starving, and they will invest resources and whatever it is to try to fill the void of that hunger, that starvation. Uh, From the beginning, God designed us to be uniquely and exclusively satisfied by Him alone. That's how God made us. That's how God wired us, that He and He alone would be the one who would satisfy us. But if you know your story, Bible story timeline, that by rejecting him, not only in the history in Genesis, but also in our life, but as rejection, men and women have been left with the aching of dissatisfaction in their life and looking, as the song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. You've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? St. Augustine, who was one of those individuals after the, uh, well, there were some other people in between, but he's often referred to as one of the church fathers. When you hear that term, that's referring to a, uh, a time period and a group of individuals that were after the 12 apostles in church history. And he made this statement, I know you've heard it before, but it fits here, where he says in his writes in his confessions, he says that our hearts are restless until they can find rest in thee. You may be here this morning and you have a restless heart. You thought by maybe getting this job, marrying this person, getting this car, whatever it is, that somehow that will fill the void. And if you haven't gotten the news, here's the news flash: nothing will satisfy you outside of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And so in our misguided attempts, we're like Israel, that Jeremiah spoke of Israel and said, their fountain, you're like a fountain of living waters who uh, you, you dig cisterns hoping to hold that water, but they leak, they don't hold the water. We do that. We work hard to try to contain whatever it is or, or gather or satisfy ourselves, but everything we gather... Uh, it's like putting money in our pockets full of holes. And so uh, Jesus addresses in John chapter 6, and the only way to understand what he says in verse 53 is to gather the information around it to, for it to make sense. And I think it's a fairly uh, understandable portion of Scripture. It may confound you when you read it, and it's certainly if somebody walked in as a guest and they have no idea about Christianity, immediately you're looking for the exit because you're talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. And I didn't know this group was a bunch of cannibals here today. Uh, but that is not what he's talking about. And we'll see that very clearly in just a moment. William Lane Craig, just by way of kind of introducing this a little bit, is a uh, what is called a Christian apologist, like Josh McDowell. It doesn't mean they are professional people who say they're sorry all the time. An apologist in Christian theology are those who work in the, in the area of theology that has to do with defending the Christian faith, have, uh, giving reasons for why we believe. And so that's what an apologist is in theology. And he makes this statement uh, in one of his books that he writes. And just listen to this. It kind of helps us kind of set this where... I believe that uh, to help us understand this, and it's talking about this void, this emptiness. And listen to what he says. Who am I, man asked? Why am I here? Where am I going? Craig says, since the Enlightenment, when he threw off the shackles of religion, man has tried to answer these questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating but dark and terrible. You're the accident, you're the byproduct of nature, we're told. A result of matter plus time plus chance. There's really no reason for your existence is our common understanding of how we came to be. All you face in life is death, struggle and death. And Craig says this, modern mankind, humankind, thought that when he got rid of God, he had freed himself, freed themselves from all that repressed them and stifled him. Instead, mankind has discovered, and maybe you have discovered or in the process of discovering, that in killing God, you have actually killed yourself. For if there is no God then your existence and my existence of life is absurd. It has no meaning. It has no sense. And then he just says this briefly. Apart from God, mankind, humankind, is a doomed race in a dying universe because the human race will eventually cease to exist. It makes no ultimate difference whether it ever did exist. Humankind is thus no more significant than a swarm of mosquitoes or a barnyard full of pigs. For their end is all the same. The same blind cosmic process that coughed them up in the first place will eventually swallow them up again in meaningless 
and absurdity. You say, well, that's really encouraging. You've got a really life verse you're starting off with, and now we're all depressed, so why don't we just go home, right? But guys, that's, that's life in the sense of apart from knowing God, of having a relationship with Jesus. That's the message of Christianity, is that God reached into our life and rescued us from this meaningless, this purposelessness, this void, this darkness, where the best we can hope for is to fight and claw our way through life and hopefully die a peaceful death. That's about as good as it will get. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible says, in fact, Jesus said in John 10, he says that I've come to bring you life. And life, one translation says, better than you've ever experienced it or known before. He is the life giver. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that if you want to know God, you can't know God apart from knowing Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm just, we're not going to stand and read a portion in just the time we have before we partake of communion together. But I do want you to look at John chapter 6. We'll primarily stay there. But if you have your Bibles, and I hope you bring your Bibles or have them in some electronic form, you can follow along and it will make more sense to you. And that's how you learn. That's how you learn about God. That's how you learn about the Bible is you engage in these moments and times like this. And, uh, but in John chapter 6, the context, again, we're going to explain this verse and why it is a confounding statement, why it's something that we need to, we need to understand. But John chapter 6 is a long chapter And it really begins and talks and and gives the narrative of when Jesus fed 5,000 individuals. Now, in reality, that was probably just 5,000. And if you know anything about the way the more Eastern uh, mind thought, 5,000 was just a massive number. It wasn't 4,999 plus one. It was just, it was a lot of people, okay? But traditionally, they only counted the men. So if you add women and some children in there, it could easily be 10, 12, 13, 14,000 people. Kind of a big, even makes it a, a bigger miracle, right? From a, a little kid's lunch, okay? So that's the context. And what happened is that when he fed them, boy, they were ready to, uh, they were let it, ready to nominate him and elect him king for life. And so if you look with me in John chapter 6, I want to just walk through this and and show you that Jesus used this miracle, five loaves and two fish. He fed them naturally. He gave them real food. They were really hungry, okay? They were really hungry. So he uses this miracle. By the way, it's one of the few miracles that are actually recorded in all four Gospels. Should heighten its significance. And so he fed them in the natural in order to take them to the spiritual, okay? It's a vivid illustration of what Jesus wants to drive them into and teach us here today that the spiritual food that he offers is the food that gives eternal life and eternal satisfaction to all who eat it. And he uses this dramatic miracle to build on that. Look with me at verse 27. I think we can round it out. Jesus says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Verse 32, 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread. Say true bread. The true bread out of heaven. Verse 33. For the bread of God. Again, he's leading them into spiritual truth. The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am, what? The bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. He says it again. Verse 50. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my what? My flesh, my body. Verse 52, you can imagine the uproar. The Jews begin to argue with one another, saying... How can this man give us flesh to eat? It's interesting that Jesus didn't soften. He was making an analogy of the natural to the spiritual. And you'd think, oh, I'm sorry. Kind of like sometimes I might, you know, want to clarify and give you understanding and kind of soft. I know that kind of sounded harsh, so let me back it up. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't soften what he was saying. In fact, he kind of ramped it up. He said... uh, He changes the bread and he starts talking about his flesh. Look at what he says in verse 53 through 57. So Jesus said to them, now they're confused. Remember Nicodemus when he came to Jesus and Jesus began to talk to him about being born again? What did Nicodemus immediately assume that, are you talking about I have to be physically reborn? I mean, you know, again, they're confused like that. Jesus knew that, but he's driving home a point. So Jesus said to them, verse 53, truly, truly, that I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so he who eats of me, he also will live because of me. So he goes back in verse 58 to the bread analogy. He's he's fed them natural bread, but he's now drawing it back to himself as the true bread. Verse 58, this is the bread, meaning himself. He's talking about himself. This is the bread which came down out of heaven... Not as the fathers ate and died. Not like, again, there's a lot of Old Testament pictures here that are connecting some dots. Not as your fathers ate in the wilderness. What was it called? What kind of bread was it called when they ate in the wilderness that God gave them out of heaven? Manna means, what is this? You may have thought of that at dinner one night this week. What is this? Well, that's what the the manna came out of heaven. And remember, they had to collect it. And eat it, and if they tried to get some in the Tupperware and keep for, you know, a a lunch snack, it was rotten with worms. Now, the only day they could do that was in preparation for what day? The Sabbath day. Otherwise, you know, those little seal meals weren't going to work with the manna, all right? Do you see what he's talking about? These are Jews. He's talking about bread from heaven. 
They understand the picture in the Old Testament of bread that came out of heaven was a type. It was a picture. There was no... uh, He said... Look at verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, meaning himself, not as the manna, I put that word in there, as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats of this bread. He's talking about himself, that you will live forever. You ate of that bread, and you were hungry the next day. You died. It didn't have any life source, but it was a picture of coming attractions. You there? Hello, McFly, are you there? All right. What happened in the Old Testament in the wilderness was when you go to a movie, you you, you sit through 40 minutes of trailers now, you know. It was a preview of the main attraction. Do you remember what Jesus did at the, uh, after he was resurrected at the, at Luke 24? He came upon those two disciples that were walking Uh, on the road to Emmaus, and they did not recognize him. And as he began to open the word to them, what was the word? It was the Old Testament. As he began to share all those things, it says, concerning himself, beginning with the law and the prophets, that's Old Testament, their eyes were opened. Wouldn't that have been an exciting lesson to have Jesus walk through Genesis to Malachi and show us all those things? He said, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. Oh, you didn't know? Oh, yeah, that's me too. That thing there, that's me. Wouldn't that be exciting? I think we'd get a full house if Jesus came here and did that, right? So this morning as we unpack this, let me just give you three ways that we can gather some understanding of this, of this confounding statement, verse 53. First of all, I want us to look at that and talk about, because this is what Jesus is talking about, spiritual feeding on Christ is necessary for three things, three ways. Spiritual feeding, and that's what he's talking about, he's the bread of heaven, the bread of the Father, the bread of life, Spiritual feeding on Christ is necessary for three reasons. It's necessary for eternal life. It's also necessary for earthly life right now. And it's also feeding on Christ is necessary for enjoying life. Okay? Look at, let's unpack that a little bit. But before we do, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, oh my goodness, how inadequate I am to try to explain your word in a meaningful way. That's why... Lord, I am so needful and dependent on the Holy Spirit to be the teacher here today. So, Lord, let use the, the inadequate words of my mouth and, uh, Lord, the, the meditation of my heart that I pray glorifies you and your Holy Spirit today to teach us and lead us into truth today and help us understand and gain, Lord, a sense that you, O oh God, in Jesus Christ, satisfy every part of our life. And so, Lord, may we draw from heaven today and feast on the bread of life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, this is a big deal because this is a heaven or hell issue. Sometimes I'll say, well, hey, it's not a heaven or hell issue. It's just a matter of opinion. Some of you probably heard me say that. Well, this isn't one of those things. This is a heaven or hell issue. This is a big deal because it has to do with whether you are... Again, Jesus makes the connection that if you eat of this bread that he's talking about, you gain and have 
eternal life. In verse 50, going back to John 6, because again, there's a lot here. Jesus says that if you eat of him as the bread from heaven, you will not die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not die, perish, but have what? Eternal life. He's consistent there. Verse 53, he warns them that there's no life in themselves. They need life from an outside source. Verse 54, he states again uh, that it's the one who eats of his flesh and drinks his blood that has eternal life. He reinforces it again. Verse 57, that if you eat of me, you will live because of me. So first of all, let's get our heads around this one. The first part is that spiritual, spiritually feeding, spiritually feeding, on Christ is necessary for eternal life. That's what he's driving home here. Now, let me just kind of make a, a little say, a sidebar here. I won't spend too much time on it, but this passage is um, sometimes uh, confusing to some people. And one of the area, one of the uh, churches that have looked to this passage passage to support a particular understanding is the Roman Catholic Church. They use this portion to support the idea of the Eucharist. How many of you were raised Roman Catholic? Okay, so you understand the Eucharist. And so what they appeal to is this passage that in the Mass, when the priest consecrates the bread and the wine, that the priest, by his uh, uh, function that the bread and the wine literally is transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. And therefore, there's a literalness to that. Um, Well, that's problematic for a lot of reasons is because Jesus' audience would have had no clue of what he was talking about, about something that he was going to institute much later before his crucifixion. But uh, then... Through church history, they've tried to wrestle with the understanding of this. And again, I don't, I don't want to get into all that and lose track, but what I want you to hear is that this is, not, this is not referring to communion or the Lord's table, but when we partake of the Lord's table or have communion, the, the communion refers back to this. You with me? Okay? So these are Jews. And when he's talking about eating, he has something different in mind that would connect with what they're saying there. So communion had not been instituted. Uh, Jesus is speaking to unbelievers. Communion is not for unbelievers. It is for who? It's for believers, okay? Um, Enough said on that. Jesus made other statements like when he, he did say, this is my body, uh, in Matthew 26, 26, when he said, this is my body, but he also said he was a door. Does he have a door handle and a lock? And uh, he said that he was the true vine. Does he have greenery somehow connected behind his? No, you're, you're bright enough, folks, to get. What is he saying? He's using a metaphor. He's an analogy of something. I'm, I'm a door. I'm the way, the heaven. So that's how we need to understand this. Um, and so what does he say? He says, in clarifying this, he says, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood is referring to not a physical eating, but it's talking about believing 
and appropriating what Jesus has done, who he is, into my life. That's what he's talking about. When he talks about eating and drinking, he's saying you appropriate, you apply who I am to your life. You, you apply it to your life. In John 6, 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, sees the Son, uh, beholds the Son, and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise them up on the last day. Okay? So eternal life means beholding the sun, looking into the sun. Again, using the picture of remember when Moses in the wilderness put that serpent on that stick. We talked about that not too long back. And it was a picture of the judgment that God would bring, the curse that God would bring. And again, a future picture of Jesus on the cross. So, so what is he saying? The requirement... For eternal life is not a physical eating and drinking. It's beholding the Son, believing in Christ. Okay, there's no difference here. In verse 54 of John 6, Jesus said, He who eats of my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. So it's the same results. He's, again, drawing various pictures so that you understand that it's only in appropriating and believing in Jesus Christ that you have eternal life. He's just using a picture of eating, of drinking, and pointing to himself. But it still begs the question of why would Jesus, why would Jesus use deliberately graphic language that he knows is going to incite and cause a stir by saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to believe in him. He knows that that's going, to get, uh, that's going to stir things up. I think one of the reasons might have to do was that he was making it clear to these Jews who wanted to make him king that he is not an earthly king. He is a Messiah. He's not a political Messiah. He wasn't that kind of Messiah. He was the, the one who has come to offer his life as an atonement for sin. They didn't get that. They're like the crazy people in our culture today. If the government promises you enough free stuff, that guy gets elected. How many of you know nothing's free and it's tax time? Hello? There ain't nothing free. They're in the same manner. He fed them and they thought, this is great. We like this. I would like that. Wouldn't you like that? Of course, don't look so spiritual. Of course you'd love it. You'd love it. Never have to pay for any of that. But Jesus did not come. That was not his mission. He didn't come to establish a political party, a political order. He came to rescue us from our sin. Rescue us from the curse of sin that was upon us. Colossians 1 says that the requirements of the law were nailed to the cross, and that Christ in his death has removed them and has taken them away because of his death. When he comes a second time, he will come as a ruling, conquering king. So maybe that had something to do with it. Now remember, he's, he's, he's provoking them, I believe, to some measure, pushing back on their ideas, but he's using a picture that I believe that they immediately understand. We talk about manna 
as the bread of heaven, the bread of life. They, they can draw that parallel. But this idea of eating, of feasting on something, really isn't that far-stretched, uh, far-fetched from something that they should easily have identified with and understood. We won't take time to look at it, but I know you already know all this. But in Exodus chapter 12, that is the story of the Passover. You remember when God was bringing a curse upon the land of Egypt? And uh, to give you the, the cliff note version, God sent the word and said that, that each family household was to take a lamb and was to slay that lamb and to take the blood of the lamb. You get the picture looking ahead? Take the blood of the lamb and put it around the door on the doorposts and the entranceway. And that the Bible says in Exodus 12 that God says that when the angel of death passes over Egypt, remember why Egypt was being under judgment. God uh, was continuing to press Pharaoh and that nation to let my people go. How many of you know God always wins? And finally, he says, I will judge your nation and take the firstborn. But for my people, when the angel of death sees the blood, hello, I will pass over, i.e. pass over, I will pass over that house. You get the picture of what is coming attractions? But part of that uh, uh, obedience to what the Lord says that not only were they to when they slayed a unblemished lamb they were also to have a dinner and eat the lamb they were to eat of the lamb you hear the connection there so when he says unless you eat of me that shouldn't have been that far fetched because the Bible says that you must eat, physically eat of this lamb and do it quickly because you're going to need to get out of Dodge. That's the message version, get out of Dodge, okay? Some of you just woke up, heard your Dodge. Maybe your lights are on or something, you don't know. Remember what John said in John one twenty one? John the Baptist, not John the Southern Baptist, but John the Baptist because he was the baptizer, baptizing repentance. He was the cousin of Jesus. And when he saw Jesus coming in John one twenty one, what did he proclaim? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Lamb of God, Passover, wasn't that far of a stretch. Stretch that, you know, like Nicodemus, when Jesus said, you're a teacher of the law and you don't, get these ABCs of the Word of God? Hello? You're a teacher of the law, Nicodemus. You should know what I'm talking about. You should understand the connections I'm making. Perhaps another reason that Jesus used the graphic language he did was because he knew that it would be offensive. The law in Leviticus is clear that to eat of flesh and blood and to partake of an animal that you know, was not properly prepared and cooked and all was, was certainly something that would have rendered the uh, person unclean under the Jewish law. He knew that by stating that and even insinuating human flesh, he knew that would just create all the sound bells going off. They would just freak out. 
And maybe he did that just again to press that the cross, Paul said, Jesus said, is an offense. Paul said in uh, Romans, he said, it's a rock of offense. Why is it an offense? Because it demolishes any sense that I can somehow attain eternal life. Just as being born again, your human birth, you had nothing to do with in the same way that unless you are birthed by God, you are without hope. And that's an offense. It's a stumbling block. They don't like that because the the Jewish mindset in that day, and even still in a different way, even though we might not Jews, is that somehow I've got to do something to earn favorability with God. You can't do anything. Jesus paid it all. Did it all. So maybe it was a way of just pushing that concept of the offense of the cross to them. What's the point? Eating Jesus' flesh and drinking His blood, spiritually speaking, is believing in, believing in and applying His death on the cross as my only hope for eternal life. You see, if you think about eating and drinking analogy just on a human level, eating is a, is a necessary basic human need. Most of us attest by our presence here today with me being in the front of the line that we haven't missed too many meals. Right? And this church loves to eat. By the way, there's a dinner on the grounds in April, so you, you, those of you can breathe some air for a minute there. But eating, that's a part of human life. That's a part of human need of our existence. And, and when we feel hungry, when we feel thirsty, we, 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 we don't go too long uh, without finding some snack or something or eating. But if we are, have a prolonged period of starvation, I was reading last night about some individuals and read one. I don't know how this is even possible. But the longest person is somewhere around 50 some odd days that that lived, without, that lived without food. How about 50 minutes? Um, another reason, or another th- way of how, again, connecting this, is Jesus said that it's necessary, that we have a, we have a need to, uh, we have a human need to be fed of Christ. Another way maybe we could connect this human analogy is this is it only benefits you when you actually eat or drink in the natural. Somebody can't do that for you. You have to do it. And the same way with Christ. You can't just enjoy the benefits because your grandpappy was a Methodist pastor. You ever hear people talk like that? They want to say something religious around you. Maybe that's just around preachers. They want to say something religious, so they search the archives in nanoseconds and bring up the fact that their grandfather was a Methodist or somebody in their family went to church. or You know, they want to try to find some connection there. Well, that, that's wonderful and great, but it doesn't do you any good eternally. You've got to eat personally for yourself. You have to come to that place that you feast on the Lamb, the unblemished Lamb of God. Spiritually feeding on Christ is necessary for eternal life. And secondly, and the first one's longer than all of them, so you're okay. 
Spiritually feeding on Christ is necessary for eternal life, but spiritually feeding on Christ is necessarily necessary for earthly life. It isn't just benefiting us from heaven, for heaven. That's wonderful. Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, in verse 56, abides in me. It speaks of an intimate union. Jesus would teach this later in John 15 about abiding in Him. What's He talking about? He's talking about an intimacy, an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. Then unless you are partaking of me, unless you are applying me and feeding on me daily, regularly, and you're having a relationship an intimate connectiveness with me. Jesus said this in John 6, 57. Listen to this if you have your Bibles. Look at verse 57. He connects this intimacy that we enjoy with him. He says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats of me also will live because of me. Do you see the connection he's making? He's saying that the union, he's saying that just as the union that the Son has in that intimate relationship of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that when we participate and eat of Him and apply Him and take of Him for our life, we can have that same intimate union with God. Same as, he says... I think that's a pretty big deal. The last part of that verse, go ahead and put that verse back up there on the screen, please. Verse 53, where Jesus is talking about, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in Him. Spiritually feeding on Christ is necessary for eternal life. Unless you partake of Him, There is no eternal life outside of Christ. Spiritually feeding on Christ is necessary for this earthly life. It it sustains us. It's not just getting a ticket punch for heaven, but the abundant life and the blessings of Christ and the benefits of Christ are available to us now. Ephesians 1 says that every spiritual blessing in Christ is available to us now. And third is that spiritually feeding on Christ is necessary not just for eternal life or earthly life, but it's necessary for enjoying life. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you will have trials and hardships. Jesus said that, right? It doesn't make you immune from that by any circumstance. But there's something that in the midst of all of that, There is a place of satisfaction and joy that the Bible speaks of to the believer. That even in the midst of all hell breaking loose, there is a peace that passes all understanding. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4 as he was concluding this letter, which he was in jail? And he concludes in chapter 4, he says, I know what it's like to have a lot and I know what it's like to have a little. I know what it's like to be high and I know what it's like to be low in life. Good times and bad times. But he says, I've learned 
something. I like the fact that Paul had to learn something. Aren't you? He says, I've learned something. I've learned that contentment that is in Christ, that joy. And he said, and it's in that that he says in verse 13, I can do all things, Judy. I can do all things through Christ. I can have tests and uncertainties, medical and all those things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And dare I say it, I don't think it would be violating, who, that I can do all things through Christ who satisfies me. John Calvin had an interesting statement when he said in relationship to this verse, he said, how few are there who are satisfied with Christ alone? See, that's our problem. That's my problem. Is we are, sat- it, t- it takes two, I mean, what satisfies us is far less. We settle for far less of what we're willing to be satisfied by. I remember one time that somebody came to the church where I was pastoring and they wanted to see me and the other pastor. And of course, you know, when somebody wants to do that, Sean, you're always like, oh no, what did I do? You know, I'm like, oh, it's bad news, they're leaving, you know, something, whatever. So you kind of hold your breath. (laughs) It was uh, Bill Stogstill and Phyllis who came. And he slid two envelopes to the table and said, I just wanted to bless you guys with this. Um, I won't tell you what it, how much it was. But let me just say, as I came to from blacking out, <laughs> it was a significant blessing. And later that day, I'm just thinking, oh, I can do it. You know how you work. You're like, oh, I can pay this bill off and do this, blah, blah, blah. And the Lord reminded me of how, how quickly I can get into a joyful mode over some money. And the Lord said, why didn't you have this same sense of joy yesterday when you had no clue that this was even in existence? And it reminded me of how quickly I can be persuaded over the passing things of this life. Right? We settle for far too less than what God wants to give us and to bless us with. And I think Calvin hits it on the head. How few are there who are satisfied with Christ alone? If you've ever read John Piper, you know the one statement that will probably be on his grave that reads, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. You see, when what it was the issue of Israel almost their entire existence, or, you know, as a, as a nation in the Old Testament, they were constantly being warned not to chase after the idols of their neighbors. They were chosen, they were elected by God's sovereign grace among a people who were not a people, the Bible says. They had God, the creator, as their king. And yet, they were always looking over the fence and saying, Whoa, 
I wonder if that three-headed crazy monster over on that tribe, oh boy, that looks better than what we have. They get to do this. They, they were always looking and comparing. They were never satisfied. And eventually they said, we want a king like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. And we know how that worked out. The battle then, today, is always being willing to settle for a substitute that will take the place of the Lord. That's idolatry. It isn't some pole or some statue. Idolatry in its basic sense is a willingness to ascribe worth and worship to anything or other than God. What What arouses your emotions and passions? What gets you excited, happy, joyful? Is it a little extra money on your tax returns? Is is it, I mean, whatever it is, we sell out so quickly and so little. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And I think that's something that Paul was getting to when he said, maybe he could say it this way, he said, I can do all things through Him because I'm so satisfied in Him that my life is expendable. The things that come and go in my earthly existence, I'm satisfied in knowing what He would say in Philippians 1.6, that He who begun a good work in me will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And in chapter 1, somewhere around 12, verse 4, 12, 14, somewhere in there, he says, you know, the things that have happened to me, jail, have actually advanced the gospel. What's he saying? I'm just, I'm so satisfied in him. If he wants to put me in jail to advance his cause, that's fine. Because I have come to the place that I'm satisfied in Christ. To quote John Piper again, He said, the weakness, listen, the weakness of our hunger for God is not because He is unsavory or unappealing, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with so many other things. That's the reason some of you, me, you can't spend time with God and reading His Word because you're stuffed so much with other things. You've maxed it out and you try to lay in bed and I want to read a little Bible. Next thing you know, you're gone. Why? Because you're satisfied too easily. I'm satisfied too easily with other things. Feeding on Christ. Feeding on Christ. Are you satisfied with Christ alone? Do you feed on His death for you as your only hope of eternal life? Do you feed on Him daily in this earthly life? for our nourishment, for our joy, for our satisfaction? And do you enjoy all that He has for you right now? And if that, you can't say yes to any of that, guess what? We need to change our diet. We need to change our diet and start feeding on Christ, the bread of life, the bread that has come from heaven. Let's stand to our feet as we As I said, Jesus was not referring in this context. But easily as they gathered and partook, those disciples of that cup and bread, 
There's no doubt in my mind they connected what he said, that he's the bread from heaven. And so the Bible says that Jesus took bread as he was gathered with his disciples and he broke it. And I just always break mine because it reminds me that he was broken. You're broken here today? He was broken for you. He suffered the rejection and wrath of his father. He who knew no sin became sin. Like Moses put that serpent on the pole, Jesus was the judgment of God upon the cross, upon that pole, if you would. That would be the judgment of his father. The Bible says that the wrath of God was the point that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of what Jesus did, God will never forsake us. Will never reject us. We are secure in Christ. So Father, we bless this matzah representing the bread from heaven, your body that was broken. And Lord, we thank you that it, in its symbolic form, but yet there is the presence of Christ that dwells when we participate in this time together as a church body. So Lord, as this bread is taken and eaten by us, Let it be a physical, tangible illustration that I need to feed on the benefits of the cross every day, every hour. And so we bless this bread in your name. Let's eat of this bread. And he took the cup, and it was a singular cup. There was no franchise of little plastic cups. But our health-conscious world now, we tend to... But I think we miss something by the singular cup. I really do. I'm not going to start a new trend, but... But there's something of the unity of the cup, the singularity of the cup that I think symbolically we miss. But again, it isn't in the vessel. It's not in the element. The reality, Jesus said, is in the spirit remember again one verse I didn't really in understanding what he says and I think it's applicable to when we before we partake of this cup Jesus said it is the spirit the Holy Spirit who gives life verse 63 of John 6 it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is of no avail physicality just that doesn't do us any good So when Jesus talked about this eating of the flesh, drinking his blood, he explains it there in verse 63 and says, it's the spirit, it's the spirit, it's a spiritual truth. And when he took that cup there when he was, we call it the last supper, when he was gathered there with his disciples, knowing one of them was a sellout, a traitor, he said, this cup represents the new contract that my father has made. It's the new covenant. It's, it's, the, it's the heavenly reboot. 
that from this point forward of my death, burial, and resurrection, the terms by which God will relate to us are the terms of the cross and not the law. The law only magnified our need for a Savior. Paul said, how would I have known what sin was apart from the law? How would I know what a foot is without a ruler of 12 inches? That's his point. How do I know what offends the holy God unless the law shows me these are the things that offend and these are the things that my sin keeps me separated? But Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law. I've came to fulfill the law. Because right in Genesis chapter 3, in the darkest hour of humankind's early birthing history, when mankind took the bait of Satan and rejected God's leadership and lordship, right in the midst of that cursing of the serpent, God says, I'm going to bring forth a seed through the woman, coming attraction of the Lamb, the seed, Jesus, that would be born of a virgin. Right there. Right there. When he could have just said, you know what? I'm going to start all over. But in the midst of that rebellious, dark moment, he promised and showed grace and mercy. Don't ever underestimate the power of grace in your life. God is not sorry he saved you. So, Father, we holding this cup representing your blood. This is fruit of the vine, reminding us of the abidingness of being connected to the true vine. Lord, we have fed and now we drink. We take, God, the blessing of Calvary. And in this symbol that you have established, we receive the spiritual reality in our life as we drink of this cup, blessing it, representing the new contract, the new covenant that has been made. And we thank you as we drink now. Please don't crush the cups. That's always a wonderful sound after we take communion. Somehow a lot of people's anger just wants to... Let me, let me read this to you before we're dismissed. I read this article of a woman in West Palm Beach, Florida. If we could just kind of be still back there for a moment. A woman in West Palm Beach, Florida. In fact, go ahead and be seated for a minute. We're going to do that song. She died alone at the age of 71. A coroner's report was tragic because it said the cause of death was malnutrition. And the dear old lady wasted away to 50 pounds when they found her. Investigators who found her said the place where she lived was a veritable pig pen. It was the biggest mess they said you could imagine. One seasoned inspector declared he had never seen a residence in greater disarray. The woman had begged food at her neighbor's back doors and had gotten what clothes she had from the Salvation Army, and from all outward appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow, but 
as Paul Harvey would say, that's not the rest of the story. Amid the jumble of her unclean and disheveled belongings, two keys were found which led the officials to, a, to safety deposit boxes at two different local banks. And what they found was incredible. The first box contained over 700 AT&T stock certificates plus hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, and financial securities, not to mention a stack of cash of almost $200,000. The second box had no certificates, only more currency, and lots of it, almost $600,000 in cash. Adding the net worth of both boxes, they found that the woman had in her possession well over a million dollars, but she died of malnutrition. She was surrounded by massive natural resources just a taxi cab away. But she died of starvation. My friend, that should not be the story of God's people who have access to massive resources in Christ and yet live spiritually impoverished lives lacking spiritual nutrition. Jesus says, feed on me, for I have life, and the life that I give you, you'll never die. You'll never suffer. Sherry, let's sing that.
That's all we have, right? That's all we have is Christ, Him alone. Before we close, uh, I want Stetson and Bethany, if you just would come over here. We want to pray for them. Most of you know that they are transitioning to a ministry uh, over in Plant City. And uh, what's the church's name again? Transforming Life Church. And uh, so they're going to be a blessing over there. It's a good opportunity for Stetson and Bethany. We wish them well, and uh, we want to bless them. And uh, most of you uh, are aware of that. And if you're not, now you are. But uh, so we are thankful that uh, Kevin Caparoletti, who will be, uh, he's away out of town today, but he's going to be back, and he's going to serve as our interim youth director until he gets married and moves to Rochester, which we can't do anything about that. That's locked and loaded. So, But uh, we believe that, you know, again, just as God provided uh, eight months ago, uh, Stetson and Bethany, we believe the Lord will provide the right person and the right time to serve our church. But we give God thanks for you guys and thankful uh, for you being here. And I'd like uh, Sean and Jim and Mike Williams. Did he, did Mike still here or did he slip out? Well, Jim, okay, he's up there. Mike is an elder emeritus around here when he's in town. And uh, I want you guys to come up here and we want to lay hands on them and pray for them. And uh, Jim, I'm going to ask you if you would uh, lead in that prayer for us. And uh, anything you want to say? Three seconds of this. Um, just that uh, we've been privileged to be here and um, we, this is hard for us. Um, it's something we didn't think we had to do as soon as we had to do it. Um, it's something that I have to do for school for credentialing and that sort of thing. And um, the deadline moved on us quicker than we expected um, and some other variables and things. So we've been blessed to know the students here. We've been blessed with you. We've been blessed to worship here. And um, this will always be uh, a, a home for us. And um, we, we will... Definitely come and, and visit and pray and intercede for grace and for all of you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for Stetson and Bethany and how you have brought them to us and put them in our lives. Father, they, they are never out of our lives now. We will know them for eternity. So, Father, I thank you for that blessing that they've brought into this church and to the youth group and to us as a body of believers. Lord, I pray that your spirit will go before them and make their path known to them, Lord, easily. Father, bless them. Give them wisdom and knowledge and courage that they need to have as they follow and seek after you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name.